Hello and welcome back. Happy 2021, hopefully. I am your host, Christina Gonzalez-Sander, and each Tuesday I host No BS Conversations with women of color about the intersections of race, identity, and our cultural upbringings with, well, everything else. So if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, you already know this, but if you are new here, we are a lifestyle podcast made for women of color to talk about everything from self-development, well-being, finances, spirituality, entrepreneurship, all these different topics because what I really want to do is have more conversations that women of color can relate to. Like, I want you to be able to listen to this podcast and be like, ugh, me too. And so hopefully that's been happening to you as you've been listening to season one and season two. But again, I thank you so much for being here and listening. So today's guest is Bernie Barcelo, who is actually the first guest from season one of the podcast. And I was so excited to bring her back onto the podcast to come and talk a little bit more about inner child work because we had such a big response to the episode. I mean, 1,200 people listened to that episode and wanted to know more about inner child work and what it was and how doing that work can help you in your daily life and relationships and all sorts of things, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today in this episode. So if you don't know Fernie, you should totally listen to part one. So that would be season one, episode one with her to kind of get to know her a little bit about her work. And then this one's going to dive much deeper into inner child work, limiting beliefs and partnerships of both the romantic and platonic kind. So one last thing that I want to note before we dive into this episode and this interview with Fernie is that we're giving away another free pair of Alberts. So make sure that you stick around until the end to hear about what you have to do. Congratulations to Nikki Carter for winning last December's giveaway. Sorry, I was like, last December. That wasn't even a sentence that finished. But yeah, and then hopefully y'all liked the episode that we did last week where I invited my friend Sinitra, who also volunteers at Impulse Company, to just let y'all get to know us a little bit more and, you know, see who we are as people. So with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. Well, I'm so excited to have you back on. Yay! I'm so glad we're doing it again. It was like my favorite. It was my first and funnest podcast thing I've done. It was just such an easy conversation. I feel like it always is when I talk to you, though. I'm like, you're just vibing, riffing. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's so nice to have you back on now because I've done it. I've done it a few more times. You you have. Just a couple. And like, yeah, like just a few. And when I did it with you the first time, I was like, oh, shit, like, Okay, we're gonna try this thing and see how it goes. <laughs> oh, but it went really good. It went really well because you know your episode, like I told you, has almost what twelve hundred listens. It's crazy. It's 
unreal. So obviously people people want to know about their inner child. And yes. well, we'll talk about it again if you want to. Oh, and we did oh, it in my old 100%. office, RIP. I know. In your cute little office. Maybe one day I'll have a I mean, this weird bedroom is kind of like my new office now. So whatever. I've tried to, I've tried to make it a little cute. <laughs> I'm sure you have to keep it zen for you because you're yes. sitting in there all day long. Yeah. Um, but let's kind of dive into it. Okay. Obviously, if y'all want to know a little bit more about Fernie, there is another episode that you can listen to. And that goes way more into who she is and her background. But this one, I want to just like, dive into the nitty gritty. Cause mm-hmm. like I said, it was one of the most listened to episodes and everyone wants to know more about inner child work and like ancestral trauma is what we talked a lot about last time, but right. I think that we could dive further in, yeah. especially with the pandemic yeah, and how that's played out. Yes, of course. So I guess let's start with what have you like been seeing as a pattern with your patients. I'm sure people's like inner child fears have really come up during this time. Yeah. It's been stressful and I think a little lonely not being able to connect with people. Yes. I mean, I see the inner child gets triggered by whole lots of different things, obviously all the time, but it was really funny because it was funny, but it's like funny in a not haha way, but a funny in a yes. way where it's like when I saw everybody once they got back from the holiday. It was like inner child work, inner child work, inner child work, inner child work. <laughs> like oh. Because people get, you know, the, the number one thing that I hear when they come back from their families, and then I 100% understand this, is how how hard it is to be back with your family for an extended period of time. You can't get leave the house and, you know, you're with them 24-7. So, yeah, especially after the holidays, people were coming back and being like, I thought I was good, but my mom or my dad or whoever still drives me bananas yeah and I need to figure out like what to do about it (laughs) oh my gosh I'm sure I feel like I don't know I think your family has a special way of triggering you (laughs) and there's like I at least for me I feel like there's always a part of me that when I hang out with my family again in certain instances I like revert back to being like 15 yeah, you're not alone in that. That there's a reason. You know? <laughs> a reason for that. I'm like, oh my god, I thought I was an adult. What the hell's happening? Well, it's like that. Oh, that quote. I don't remember who said it. It was probably like some very Zen Buddhist monk type of person. But it was like, if you think you've reached enlightenment, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> oh my god, that's my favorite. <laughs> but there's a reason for that, Christina. There's a reason why we all revert back to being like either teenagers or straight up babies, <laughs> like real little babies when we're around our family Seriously. and why they trigger us so deeply, even if it might be like a, a small, which it usually is like some small circumstance that just blows things out of proportion. But mm-hmm. the reason in real simple sort of words is that because these are the people who created the inner child wound dynamics, not on purpose, hopefully, right? Just because they Mm -hmm. were parenting the best that they could. And that has gaps in it, like it will have for those of us who will become parents, because that's normal. And there's no such thing as a fully perfect parent or human being. But when you think about like, the root of our inner child wounds, it has to do with our family dynamics, our Mm -hmm. nuclear family dynamics, and with our parents, especially and with our caregivers. So that's why it feels so big. That's why like something that your mom does 
versus, I don't know, a girl you work with doing the exact same thing could feel mm. very different. Like mom, oh my gosh. <laughs> mom could say a certain word and it would just drive you completely insane. And like Billy from across the street could say the same word and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't give a crap. Oh man, mom, if you're listening to this, I love you. <laughs> so- <laughs> I love my mom. I love you. <laughs> but like, but yeah. It's so funny because I was telling her the other day, I'm like, mom, no matter how many times you try to call me before 9am, I'm not picking up mm-hmm. before nine. And she like does this thing where she like giggles and she's like, ah, okay. And then she still does it anyway. And I'm like, <laughs> and I, I told her this, so this is not a new surprise for her. But I guess like, when you're looking at your inner child work and like looking at these wounds, what should people do to like, understand what they are? You know what I mean? Like, understanding your triggers, I guess. And it's so funny, Christina, I'm like, in the very, very, like, beta stages of creating an inner child work course. So we can answer all of these questions, which I've been trying to do for years, but I finally like, I'm actually doing it right now. Just blueprinting and whatnot. So, you know, people can reach out for that because that'll literally explain all of it. But to better understand, really, you have to just start with like a family dynamic intake. And what that can involve is just asking yourself questions like, first, start real simple. Like, how would I describe my mom's personality? How would I describe my dad's personality? You can add in your siblings as well. You can take into account like, what it was like being the youngest, what it was like being the middle, the oldest. And oftentimes just starting with like the descriptors of their parents, like when I do this with my clients, it starts to become very obvious sort of like what the influence of that parent was Mm. for my client. And so people can start really simple with like just using a bunch of adjectives, describe your mom's personality when you were growing up. So your mom's personality now doesn't really matter if it's different, right? Mm -hmm. So what was mom's personality when you were growing up when you were a child? And from there, they can start to see sort of like how they perceive mom, what was mom's way of moving through the world, right? Was Mm -hmm. she like, super social? Was she super present? Was she super angry? Was she super loud? Was she not there at all? And with that, you can start to sort of organize just the feeling of living in a house with parents like that. You know what I mean? Like when you start Mm -hmm. to describe your parents, you're like, oh, what was it like living with a really angry dad or a really absent mom, or even if it wasn't bad things like a really loud mom or a really social mom or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I usually just start with like a family intake. And then, you know, from there, questions I would ask would be, you know, how was your relationship with your mom or with your dad? Who did you get along with? Who was the disciplinarian? Who was like the nice guy if there was anyone? Mm. And of course, in therapy work, things like, you know, trauma obviously have to be noted, like if there was any trauma in childhood and what it was and who it was caused by or what happened or what was the reaction of the parents when it happened. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff obviously comes into play. But when we talk about inner child wounds there, after a prolonged period of time, the child receives information from being in this household, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll speak in metaphors because that always just makes more sense in examples. So for example, you have a four-year-old who every time they run to try to give a hug to their mom, their mom pushes them away. After a while, that five-year-old, even though they're only five, is going to understand that like, if I go for affection, it's going to be rejected. So they mm. start to change what they do, right? So they, you know, the most common thing would be they stop seeking uh, physical affection, right? 
or and they internalize the message that physical affection is bad or I'm not worthy of physical affection because we need to remember that kids have really simplistic thinking. So when you're little, you make everything about you. You're like, she's not hugging me because there's something wrong with me. That's just how kids think. It's really simplistic, right? It doesn't get any oh. nuanced because they're not adults. Right. They don't have adult brains. They can't say like, yeah, they have like kid brains. They're yeah, just they like, have... you don't love me. What's happening? It, yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Cause they can't reason and say, you know, Oh, mom doesn't want to give me a hug because she's depressed. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, I have compassion for that. Their kids. It's real simplistic. So that five-year-old or four-year-old or whatever I was saying will at some point just integrate the fact that mom won't hug me. So I'm going to stop asking for it. And then if we fast forward to that five-year-old being a 25-year-old, that 25-year-old might really struggle to both receive or give affection or maybe even be cynical to affection like all those people that are like, ugh, I hate, ugh, I hate touching and I hate kissing and I don't like that kind mm. of stuff. When deep down inside, you know, that's what they've actually always desired, but this resistance to it or this push away from it it was a coping mechanism that they had to develop in order to, you know, continue functioning in that household to not get hurt over and over and over again. So Mm. one of the really nice things about inner child work is that it helps you understand in a compassionate way why you do things that you do. So instead of being like, oh, why am I such a cold hearted person that doesn't you know, like affection, it's like, well, no, there's a reason for that, right? And we learn the story mm-hmm. and everything. So, oh, I never even thought about that. That, like, when you're a child, obviously you don't have reasoning capabilities, you no, know? What I mean? you're, you're, you're like, your thought process is super limited. I mean, your frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until you're about 25. So, think of what that little brain is doing at five. And you're just like, you're, it's basically like bad, good, bad, good, yeah, bad, good. And like, Your mom could have been like, maybe she was, you know, running a business. And then she was, it wasn't like, I don't want to hug you. I just don't want to hug you. Maybe like right at this, like, that's exactly exactly what I meant by that. And I know I said this in the last episode, but I always have to do my little like precursor of like Mm -hmm. inner child work isn't about making your parents out to be bad people. It's getting an understanding of the dynamics at play so you can better understand and heal yourself. So it's just... Mm -hmm. You know, we're not calling mom a bad person because she didn't hug you because maybe she had a perfectly good reason. Like you said, maybe she was busy with work. And I mean, you can hug a kid, but maybe she had her reasons. It's just really about understanding what like prolonged behavior patterns with your parents' reactions to you as a child just ended up developing in you as an adult. And I also like to tell people that, you know, when they hear stuff like that, they're like, but what if I turn into a working mom? And what if I don't hug my kid often enough? And are they going to hate me and be all messed up? What we know because of psychological research is that it needs to be a prolonged response. So if you don't hug your kid once or twice or five times, they'll be fine. They're not going to, you know, unless it's a trauma, right? Like a really intense circumstance, like one really Mm -hmm. intense circumstance that imprints itself in memory or a consistent response, right? Mom never hugs me. She always pushes me away. There's never any response to my calls for affection then Mm. leave an imprint. So don't worry, you can't mess your kids up with just not giving them one hug. I think the funny thing about like understanding yourself and discovering these like inner child wounds or triggers or, you know, whatever word we want to use is that like not all the time, but a lot of the time it can be a little bit 
simpler than we imagined it to be. Does that make sense? Like obviously not with trauma or anything like that, but it's like, I feel like it is hard for people to tune inward because it is a scary thing to start looking at it or it's stuff that you've been pushing away for a long time. Right. Like, like you said about affection, it's like, Oh, I don't like that. Like, Oh, PDA is so gross. Or, you know, those kinds of things. And like, because you've been thinking that way for such a long time, it's also very hard to look inward and analyze those parts of yourself without kind of having like another person to ask you questions. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard work to do by yourself. And it's always, always much easier to have a guide and a support system and somebody that says, like, come this way and let's investigate through here. Because it is a lot to do on your own. And it can be very triggering, even if you didn't have trauma in your childhood, to look at your parents through this perspective of like, what were they doing that influenced, I call them limiting behaviors, because that for me is just the easiest umbrella term to call any behavior belief that you have, that is frustratingly blocking you from having the life that you actually want, right? So if this coldness and this like, ill gross physical affection is not for me develops into like, that thing that always causes issues in your relationship, because if you're in a loving relationship, but you're asked that your partner is going to want some intimacy, physical intimacy in it, mm-hmm. then that would be worth investigating, right? And what you were saying earlier, I think is a really good point. It's like, if you never ask yourself, why am I like this with curiosity? Because people say that all the time with judgment. Why am I like this, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, I love this distinction. I already know where you're going with yeah, this. But yeah. Keep going. Yes. I'm so excited. I tell my clients this all the time. I'm like, you're allowed to ask that, but you're not allowed to ask it with criticism. You're allowed to ask it with curiosity. So why am I like this? Can I sit with where did I first start to experience or integrate that physical affection was bad? What's my first memory of that? Sometimes that's a question I ask too. And so people might have really vivid memories of like, a time where they got pushed away or a time where their affections got rejected. And it doesn't have to be a traumatic memory. It can just be one that will stick out due to the nature of like how much it impacted them in that moment. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about this distinction though, yeah. about like being curious and not being judgmental with yourself at the same time. Because mm-hmm. I feel like if you analyze okay let's say you're like an analytical thinker right like you're really thinking a lot about your behavior and how you affect people but you're also thinking about it about how you move through the world with and judging yourself on that I feel like you do yourself such a disservice by like I don't know putting yourself down or you know saying that I feel like it encourages thoughts of there's something wrong with me Mm -hmm. versus like actual curiosity for how and why you behave a certain way. Right. I mean, it's curiosity plus compassion. It's all these C words. Because if we don't build a self-compassion practice as we work through these really difficult things to work through, I mean, for many, many people, talking about their childhood is one of the hardest things to do, trauma Mm -hmm. or not. It just evokes a lot of old memories. It involves a lot of painful memories sometimes. And it's really painful to admit that a parent might have been lacking in an area. Like even yeah. if you love your mom and dad, it's just, re- and and it hurts even more if you love them, right? Because if you hate your mom and dad, because it was blatantly obvious that they abused you or neglected you, then it's easy to say, yeah, mom and dad did this to me and that's why I'm that way. But for people who have solid relationships with their parents, it can be very painful to say, oh, shoot, whenever mom would push me away like that, 
even though I know she didn't mean it in a mean way, it really did hurt my feelings. And when you're going through really messy, really sometimes painful things like that, that resurface, if you don't hold yourself with compassion, it can be really easy to get frustrated with that work. It can be really easy to just sort of pigeonhole yourself to be like, well, I'm so messed up that this is just the way that I am. I'm never going to change this because I mean, obviously this is all long haul work. So Mm -hmm. if you don't have patience and compassion for yourself while you're doing this kind of stuff, like it's going to be a way more difficult journey because you're not going to resolve stuff that has been entrenched in you and your psyche and your way of being for decades for most people in a couple of weeks or a month, you know, unless Mm -hmm. you've got some sort of superhero therapist, God bless them if they exist out there, you know, it takes, it's not me. (laughs) It It takes time and it takes patience. And sometimes it feels worse before it feels better, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're unlearning a lot of behaviors and thoughts that you've believed for such a long time. And I think unlearning takes maybe, I don't know, maybe even double the amount of time, right? You're basically creating new habits of thinking. On top of letting go of the old ones. Mm -hmm. And like dealing with trauma and talking about painful experiences, right? It's like Mm -hmm. one thing on top of another to get to like this, I don't know, peaceful place, I guess. Well, yeah, I think for a lot of people, what the end result there is, it's a bunch of different things. I think it's, It's understanding of yourself in a compassionate lens where you like, oh, that's why I struggle with that, which really for me facilitates the change because beating yourself up throughout the process is is a huge hindrance to the progress, right? If you're just constantly Mm -hmm. like whipping your own back about stuff and and creating lots of self-critical reactions to you doing this work, it really makes the process longer and heavier and harder. So to me, it's just a very important thing to recognize, like, this is going to take time. I have to be really sweet with myself when these things come up. I have to hold space for the difficult emotions that arises or when I hit a wall, because that inevitably happens with anyone who does this work. And then the more intense the wounds were, the more painful the experiences, obviously, in childhood that a person has. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bigger the can of worms we're opening here, we're opening it intentionally, but that doesn't mean that what comes out isn't going to be really painful and hard Mm -hmm. to witness. Yeah. I think one thing that we did in a session was like, you had me like imagine my inner child being like literally a completely other being, which I think makes it, for me, I think it made it easier to be compassionate and sweet toward myself by like reimagining that it's not me. It's like little me. Yeah. That I'm like giving a hug to. It's little Christina. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I really loved that because I think it helps, you know, people think like, okay, well, I wouldn't talk to this like little kid (laughs) like that, you know? Yeah. That's sort of the point of that type of exercise. I think what you were talking about is just like taking you into a visualization where you speak to your childhood self, right? Like your mm-hmm. like little Christina at whatever age, usually it's anywhere between like four years old or eight years old, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, when you, when you look at them as parts of us and in visualizations, it's really helpful because you actually see your little girl, you right in your mind to be able to converse with that part of yourself is so much easier than you just sitting and sort of all as one, like amalgamated billions of parts try to speak to yourself or understand yourself in that way. But yeah, those visualizations are very powerful because once you start to see, at least in your mind, and feel into what it's like to 
witness that little girl or little boy's pain, it really, I mean, it really touches into the emotional piece of it. So like you were saying, you're way more likely to offer compassion or love or patience or like words of kindness or affirmation to that part of you when you see them as a literal younger version of yourself. I have my Mm -hmm. clients, like they use the language of like little me. So they'll be like, oh, I got into an accident at work and I got real triggered, but I know that was little Christina who got like, you know, they told her that she wasn't I mean, up so and she was like sad and, you know, upset about it or whatever. Uh, I like, I just think it sounds cuter and it like triggers something in my mind to be like, okay, it's not necessarily, it's me, but it's like something that happened to me a long time ago. That's why I'm feeling like this. And I need to just like take a deep breath. And like calm myself down. I feel like that's usually what I think in my head. But I also want to talk a little bit more about limiting beliefs. Sure. Because I think, you know, everyone has them. Yes, everyone has. And like, yeah, like everyone has those limiting beliefs. And I guess, what do you recommend to people about like fighting those limiting beliefs? I think they are a hindrance to anything that we want to do, right? Whether we want to, start a new project, or maybe we feel like we want to apply for a new job, but then you don't feel like you're worthy enough for that job. And I guess, what are some ways that people can battle those limiting beliefs and things that they tell themselves? Well, first, you have to create self-awareness around your limiting beliefs, period, right? Like you have to do enough self-excavation to go, oh, thinking about myself or the world like this actually holds me back. And that in and of itself, that light bulb moment takes a while to get to because I was explaining it this way to a client the other day. Limiting beliefs are always a product of programming, some kind of programming, whether it came from your family or society or the media or your friends or a relationship. And usually it's all of those, right? So if we think of all of that type of programming as saran wrap, right? Mm -hmm. We all grow up getting covered in layers of saran wrap, right? Which influences and skews our perspective of the world. It's like if you were to put saran wrap on a window, you can still see through it, but it's affected, right? Mm -hmm. And the more saran wrap you put on the window, the more affected your vision of the world is, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. you've got so much saran wrap that you can't even see through it anymore. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we need to do is sit back and ask questions around why am I looking at the world like this? Why am I looking at myself like this? Where did I first hear that about myself or the world? And then discovering it's limiting by saying, well, if I believe this, what does it cause? Right? So I'll give you a personal example because those always work best. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a beautiful mother who I love very much, but she wasn't the best at emotional validation. And that's because she had a mother who was incredibly bad at that, right? So she was great at cooking and cleaning and providing a wonderful household, but she wasn't great at being like, it's okay to be mad. And this is what anger is, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think most moms from our generation, our generation of moms have, they just didn't have a lot of emotional education or intelligence because it wasn't available. They didn't have a bunch of books and podcasts and media and reading, right? Like we do, we've got like a complete influx of, of stuff that we can read or or listen to that will help us um, understand our emotions better. And through the lens of like being a woman of color, a lot of our moms have immigrated to the United States and 
yeah. dealt with all sorts of trauma like that, being refugees, all sorts of different elements that are, right. you know, you can't even begin to like imagine. Right. And them not working through those personal traumas obviously influenced what type of mothers they'd be. Like, for example, both my grandmother and my mother both lost children, right? And mm-hmm. they weren't going to the therapist. Like my grandmother, my mother grew up in, you know, in the middle of Mexico City back in the 1950s. My mom was born. Like they weren't reading a book on how to deal with child loss. They weren't like listening to a podcast on how to process and grieve a dead child. Like this was something that they basically only knew how to do one way, which is like suck it up and keep moving on with your life because that's all they knew, right? It's not because right. they didn't have the intelligence. That's lit- you, you don't know what you don't know, right? So mm-hmm. And because of that, I have this programming within me that I've worked very hard to remove the cling wrap off of that people don't care what I have to say, right? And that's also a product of being the baby of the family. If anyone out there is the baby of the family, you know that you often are the one that like gets talked over or like inadvertently dismissed because you're the baby, even if you're 34 years old, like that dynamic is still at play, right? So I remember experiencing a moment where I was feeling like people that my life, like friendships, like never checked in on me and didn't care about how I was doing or what I said, right? And, you know, me being a therapist and me doing all of this work and yada, yada, this wasn't that long ago. This was maybe like a year or so ago that I, I was like, why am I feeling this way? I'm able to ask myself that question. I'm able to go, where is that coming from? Why am I believing that people don't care about me or what I have to say? Like, where is that coming from? And so I sat with it and I did my own sort of, you know, family excavation. I'm like, oh, there's this old story that, you know, what I have to say isn't that important because I'm the baby. And because, you know, when I was upset and like being loud and having big feelings like little kids do, mom's number one thing was be like, it's okay, don't cry. Like, you know, not to explore Mm -hmm. that with me. So I noticed that as a limiting belief because what it made me do when I believe that people don't care what I have to say or don't care how I'm doing is retreat in resentment from my relationships, right? Oh, okay. You know, so if you've ever felt that, like the number one thing you want to do is like, well, you don't want to check in on me. Well, I'm not going to check in on you. Like that tit for tat type of yeah. thing. And so that's kind of what I had been doing. So this limiting belief had perpetuated me self-sabotaging myself because I was removing opportunities in my life for people to check in on more with me because I was pulling away. And as Mm -hmm. soon as I came to that conclusion, I was like, okay. And like you said earlier, Christine, like sometimes the answers are so freaking simple. It's crazy. But I, I always call it like, what's the antidote or what's the medicine? So if I believe that people don't care about what I have to say or how I'm feeling, what am I doing that can offer me an opportunity to prove that wrong? So the easiest thing is put your problems out there and see if people care what you have to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you I, basically do the opposite of what you're thinking because you're like, yes, I'm thinking this. I need to do the opposite thing. Yes. So like combat that like thought process. And that plays into inner child work. That would be an example of that because if we discover that the wound of not being attended to in a way that was like, I'm paying attention to you, created the limiting behavior of nobody gives a shit about what I have to say. And so I'm, I'm going to create distance between my relationships, which perpetuates the story, which right, really makes it worse, makes it worse and more true, quote unquote, to you, then the inner child work would be, well, let's give these people in my chance an opportunity to offer me help, and then we'll evaluate. And the funny thing is, is as soon as I like 
in my conversations with people and in my group chats with my friends, I started being more vocal about my problems, whether they were small or big, whether like me and my husband were having an argument or I was just frustrated because work was really stressful, whatever it was, I started talking about it more. And guess what I got? People validating your feelings. (laughs) All the validation, attention that I had wanted. And it wasn't that people didn't care. It's that I wasn't putting myself in a position where they could care because I had, well, how are they supposed to know? Yes. Because I had holed up in my shell and I wasn't talking about my stuff because that belief was perpetuating the like, well, nobody cares. So I'm not going to say anything story. Mm -hmm. And so I had to unpeel that saran wrap, right. From my filter of looking at how I thought other people believed in me, try the opposite. And in this case, gave myself a pretty clear answer of like, it had nothing to do with the people and everything to do with what you are doing. That being said, that's not to say that you could have a negative outcome with that, right? Because there probably Mm -hmm. are people in your life who don't care about what you have to say. And then, you know, that's when you start to reevaluate other things, right? Like, is that something that I want to heal? Or is that a friendship I don't want anymore? You know, then you can go off into like a million different branches. But that's just one small example of like, what a limiting belief does how we can be curious, like, where did I get that from? Why do I believe that about myself? And you can usually catch them because it's things that you say about yourself or the world all the time. It's like comments that you make, like, oh, everybody's an asshole, or like, all men are shit, or um, I'll never do X, or I'm not an X. Like, it's these blanket statements that you make about yourself or the world that those are the ones that you need to investigate, like the ones that you say all the time. I'm I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm like, I don't know what's what's happening in everyone's mind as they're listening to this right now, because I'm sure they probably just went, oh, shit. Huh. There's that thing that I say all the time. Right. Right. And And you're like, "Hmm." yeah. And that one for me was... Nobody cares how I feel. That was the one thing that I would say all the time. And if you've got a partner, it's way easier to catch because you're probably saying it to them all the time. I would say that to my husband all the time, Mm -hmm. to whatever. And yes, I'm sure there were times where he wasn't paying attention to what I was saying, but there's a reason why you pick certain phrases and certain things that you just say all the time, like when you're triggered or when you're upset or when you're feeling critical of yourself, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, my mind is whirling right now, and I'm let's, sure everybody else is. Let's talk about <laughs> one. Let's let's do it. All right, all birds, y'all. I have to tell you about them because not only do they make the world's most comfortable shoes using natural materials, they care about their community, and that is so refreshing. Recently, they asked me to join their global community of changemakers called the All Good Collective, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. I am part of this group with a couple of other people you might recognize, like Leah Thomas, who's the founder of Intersectional Environmentalist, Lisa, who's the founder of the sustainable fashion brand Mian Studios, and so many other amazing people that are doing really awesome things in their communities. Part of Albert's focus this year has been to empower their own members by elevating our voices, our work, and our stories. They really are on a mission to do things right. And if you'd like to check out the work of the other All Good Collective members, visit community.allbirds.com for upcoming events online and in real life. You can also follow them on social media at Allbirds. But 
I'm going to give you a chance to seriously try out a pair of Allbirds with our monthly giveaway. So make sure you stick around until the end of the episode to find out how you can win a pair of Allbirds and see for yourself how freaking amazing they are and know that I'm truly, genuinely a fan. All right, back to the episode. It's just funny because like, I, you know what? I feel like I, in my friend group, a lot of people come to me to like have a conversation about like how they're feeling and like talking and, and I feel like you, like there has been points where I'm like, I'm always the person that's like reaching out to people and like seeing how they are and like, I'm like, I'm not doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, fine. Yeah. But like, I really relate to that. And cause I, I feel like I'm a, a lot of the times I'm someone that people go to, to like talk about these things and like, listen. And then when, in when I'm feeling like that, like, okay, but like, what about me? What about me? Yeah. <laughs> like, Why does everyone gonna... care about how I'm feeling? And I had to learn like, well, you have to tell somebody or like, no one's literally going to know, yeah, you know? And, it. It's a very common, what you're describing, Christina, it's obviously something I just finished saying that I feel too, but it's a very common thing for helpers to feel. And I just, I use that term sort of as anyone who's in a career where they or that you don't necessarily have to be in a career. It's, it might be something that you want to do with your future, but it's people who are really about helping and being of service to others. And like being in that dynamic where like, I want something to give to the world that can help heal it or heal an individual or whatever it is. Helpers are programmed to help. And so they spend a lot of their lives either engaging in actual jobs or maybe in their personal life being the the therapist, the shoulder to lean on, the one that people can always go to, the one who answers the phone at 2am. The shadow side of that is that we identify so deeply with being a helper that we're never, or maybe not never, but we very often forget to put ourselves in the position of the one being helped. So it's- Oh my God. Yeah, right. You're a Capricorn, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. I'm so, so like- that. <laughs> Even more. I don't need anybody's help. I got this. And then I'm like, I have so much work to do. Or I'm like, am I the only person doing my job right now? Like, what's going on? I'm such a, and I know that about me. Like, I know that I can be, like, I could probably take it down a notch on the workhorse, you know, yeah. that feeling. Yeah. And it's so hard to, like, get out of that. And that's especially true for me in a work sense. Mm-hmm. Is like, I took my... <laughs> I took a disc assessment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I, if anyone hasn't heard about it. It's like a personality test specifically about how you interact in like work environments. Interesting. And my, one of my comments on there was like, you better do your homework because you better believe Christina already did. And she's not going to be happy about it if you didn't. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, it really <laughs> resonates with that. Thing to say. Such, it is such a Capricorn thing to say. And it's like, Christina, relax. Like, calm, like sometimes I have to, I talk to myself a shit ton. Also, that's the other I thing. Do. It's like I'm like, all right, Christina, like, you know, calm down and you just like go for a walk around the block and relax for a second because you're like turned up. Yeah, yeah. What's your moon and your rising? Uh, my moon is Libra. Oh. So then I'm like super sensy and fun. Yeah. No, but I feel like yes. Yeah. Is that it? I was like, I don't know. I feel like Libras are like so like. Is everyone good? Like, is everyone, are we like all at an equilibrium? Is everyone like feeling well, yes, peaceful? Too, right? <laughs> They're all about like the scales being even and equality and that kind of stuff. And what's your moon? Oh, 
That's my moon. And then my uh, Taurus rising. Taurus rising. Okay. Well, that balances you out. That balances that Capricorn. Like, I think it does. It like, it makes me maybe like not as serious sometimes, but I feel like I can be a little bit well, it, like a, I'm saying, a tourist loves to relax. So that's, I think, where the balance is. Like a tourist loves a night at home with like a hot bubble bath and some snacks. And right, don't they say that tourists can be like a little lazy because they just like want to be like relaxing sometimes? <laughs> like but they can also be really stubborn. So if you put them in a position where they're like having to go after something, they'll go after it. Oh, I love astrology stuff. But the thing that it makes me think about is like. Where did you learn that working hard was a good thing? Oh, whew, I've already done a lot of things about this. <laughs> it, it's like, if I work really hard, then I can have the best life ever, right? It's it's like, oh, I think it's just my family. It's like, okay, work really hard. So my family is, oof, we're going to get into Okay, yeah. so my family, I'm first generation, And everyone in my family has immigrated from the Philippines. And like, honestly, for as long as I can remember, it was like, you work really hard, you get really good grades, and you get a scholarship, and then you go to school, and then you're going to get a good job and make money, and you're going to be like, set for life. Right. Like, that is the mentality. It's like, work really hard, and you will get XYZ. Yeah. Like, be the best at work, school. And then you'll get the get Yeah. Right. And so it's so ingrained. I think I'm naturally like this too, mm-hmm. but it's also very ingrained in like how I think about work and school and school back then when I was going to school, it's like, I would have, you know, good grades and then also be working a bunch of side jobs. And it was just like, basically like work hard, play hard kind of mentality mm-hmm. from like my family. And it's been like that for forever since mm-hmm. I was little, like, yeah. Christina, like, don't forget, like, you have to get good grades so that you can afford to go to school and get the scholarship. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay. And I bet you received the most validation from your parents when you did something well. Mm -hmm. It's like, Christina got straight A's. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, great. (laughs) It's like, good job. Well, that's okay, cool. Yeah. And, And I think that's probably true for, for most of us, but it's interesting that you're, you know, that you're framing it through the immigrant lens, because I have many clients, including me, I'm not my own client, but I kind of am, that lived through that same history of their family, where it was not an option to not work hard, because in order to get ahead, they had so many hurdles, right? Mm -hmm. And they had to put their nose to the grindstone, they didn't have any other choice if they didn't want to stay in their current circumstances, you know, which for many immigrants is poverty, which is why they work hard to maybe come and move and work at the States. I know that was the case also with my parents, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is very much ingrained that if you don't work really, really hard, not only is there something about like you that's not good, like you're lazy or you don't care or you're apathetic, but like, that's the only way you're going to be happy and have a good life. Like, unless you nose to the grindstone it. And then you know, mm-hmm. now with the self-awareness that we both have, we also know that that's a recipe for horrible anxiety, for burnout, for being frustrated yeah. with ourselves, for perfectionism, for self-loathing. 
for me being frustrated with other people too. Like I'm like, expect work harder. Work as hard as you. And yes, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen it in your partnerships too, where it's like, if your partner doesn't, you know, check a certain box that you very easily check because you're a hard worker, frustrations come up and what, I mean, at least that happens oh. to me all the time. hundred percent. I'm like, <laughs> Hello, do we not do XYZ thing in one hour? Hurry up. Like, like I'm I could so have done that in five minutes and it's been yeah. whatever. <laughs> exactly. And you know what's so funny is like I had to learn how to be more patient. Mm-hmm. I had to be like, okay, if I want to be on my own timeline, and that means that I also have to let other people be on their own timeline. And that is like a new thing that I'm realizing and something that I've been telling myself all the time and like that I I don't even know where I picked this up at all but I've always been super into like astrology and different modalities and like learning about myself Mm -hmm. I I don't know where it came from but it's like I've always been interested in it I always had like astrology books and numerology Mm -hmm. and tarot cards and all these things that help you know me think about that and I've really, really been trying to step into it the past couple of years because I lost it through college, you know, yeah. like partying or whatever, dumb oh, things. Mm-hmm. And like, I realized that I can only control what I can do and not what other people are doing. Right. So it's like, yeah. if I don't say how I feel about something. How do I expect anybody else to really respond as an example? Yes, yes. One of the things that I find myself needing to tell myself, but also sharing with my clients a lot when they're talking about the issues in their partnerships is don't ask for what you're not giving, right? Mm -hmm. And that for a lot of us is like a slap in the face, (laughs) right? Because you're like, oh, you know, he's never sweet to me and he's never romantic and he never writes me a love letter. And it's like, when's the last time you did that? right? I have to call myself out on that all the time because I mean, the light side of being a hard worker and I resonate with this too, and being a little workaholic-y and a little type A is that you get a lot of stuff done and you are efficient and you're productive and you're a helper a lot of the times because you're like, here, I can do this and I can do that and I can do that. But you know, when it comes to our partnerships, I think that we can get a little demanding because we want things done quote unquote, right. And it's, mm. you know, it can flood our partners and also make us forget that like, I'm not a perfect person. I'm annoying and not good at yeah, XYZ. Like- and, you know, there's a really great couples therapist who's got like a lot of literature books that he's written. His name is Stan Tatkin. And he says, he's like, you need to really sort of take your partner as they are because we're all flawed and find ways to work with the way that they are and see if you can find sort of like an easy street there with differing personalities rather than wanting to like carve out a new partner from, you know, the one that you're currently with. Right. And yeah. And I projecting your expectations and being like, why aren't you more like me? But it's like, that's exactly it. But it's like, you didn't marry you or you didn't get in a relationship with you or you didn't pick you, you picked them. Right. You picked them. And so it's so funny where I'm like, I've caught myself totally doing this. I'm like, well, I would have already had that finished. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> like, like, it takes you 30 minutes to do the dishes. It takes me five, like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, I never really had a lot of long relationships mm-hmm. until I got married because 
it's the longest one. But if you ever really want to learn about yourself, being in a partnership was definitely the time where I was like, oh, oh, okay. Got it. Duly noted. Yeah. And I think- On that thing that I do. Yes. And I think that for anyone that's doing, this is like a good segue to how inner child work like reflects itself in relationships. Being in a long-term partnership is going to be one of the easiest ways to discover what your inner child wounds are. Because one of the things that a wounded inner child does is have us pick partners that replicate the dynamic that we have with a parent. And usually it's the parent that we wanted more from. That's not to say that you're like condemned to picking bad partners. That's certainly not true. Because even if you pick a partner that is replicating a familiar dynamic that you had with a parent, which is a negative one, we can go into more why that is. If both of you are doing the work to create self-awareness and talk about what your triggers are and talk about like, I have this tendency to be impatient, babe, but I grew up in a household where it's like work, 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 grind, grind, grind. Don't be lazy. Don't leave any space for mistakes. And so then I come here and I see you do the dishes slowly and it really grinds my gears, not because I'm actually mad at you, but just because that's the way I've been programmed, right? And then Mm-hmm. You know, when you bring that stuff to light, then you can really have that reflection moment with your partner where you go, I promise I'm going to just let you do the dishes for as long as it takes you to do the dishes, right? And you yeah. drop that battle. But I think that that's so important to notice because, I mean, you know, not to get too intimate, but me and my husband, the the most productive things that have resulted from us doing things like couples therapy and having these types of conversations is I learned a lot about what happened in his childhood that influenced the way that he is now. And having that insight and knowing that like my partner is a little stubborn or a little X or a little Z because when he was growing up, blah, blah, blah happened, gives you so much compassion for them. It's nuts because then you go, you know, I don't know if if you and your hubby have this type of dynamic, but there's always like the move towards person and the move away person and the one who shuts down and yeah. the one who blows up, right? Like that's super. I'm the shut down. You're the shutdown and he's the he's, emotional. He, like, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk. I'm like, I don't want to talk about my feelings. Yes. I was like, I'm going away. I'm going to sit in the room by myself. Right. And he's like, no. Right. So in that case, you know, if you were to learn why he moves towards, right? Like, I'm the move towards person and my husband is a pull away, shut down person. And the reason I move towards is because going back to that example I gave earlier, like I really crave validation. So for me, the worst thing a person can do is shut me down, dismiss me and ignore me. That's like my biggest trigger, right? Is like mm-hmm. some action that says, I don't care about your feelings, right? So, you know, having those conversations with your significant others and even with your friends, right? Yeah, I was going to say, this is the world to friendship too. Yes, any relationship that you're close with somebody, you're going to experience some bumps in the road where you go, you know, when you ignore me, it really hurts me because, I mean, it's all rooted to, you know, back in the day, I really wanted mom's attention in this way. And whenever I would get upset, she would just turn her head. And so it brings up this feeling of like, you don't care about me. And then you can have that really nice conversation where your partner, hopefully, or your friend, hopefully says, of course, I care about you. And my tendency to shut down comes from, I had a really volatile parent. And so for me, anger is scary. And I need to crawl into my shell because that's how I knew how to protect myself, right? Mm -hmm. You start like really diving below the surface and reaching these new levels of understanding that when you see them 
do the thing that really annoys you, the, the common triggering behavior that, you know, we've all got with our friends and our partners, and you get why that's coming from, then you're like, oh, I don't have to take that personally. Mm-hmm. You create a better understanding for like the people around you too, yes. which extends like once you start doing the work for yourself, like thinking about inner child work and then like how it comes up in your partnership or with close friends. And it starts to make you think more about just your general community, like yeah. all the people in yeah. your life and giving them greater compassion, especially in this time, the pandemic, like I feel like everyone needs to extend way more compassion and understanding to how people are right now. Mm -hmm. And it's especially something to consider if you are in like a long-term serious partnership where you've been locked up, cooped up with your partner this whole time. I was saying the other day to a friend, it feels like this pandemic made us go through like marriage boot camp. Like, I don't know if you feel that way, babe, but it's like we forwarded through almost like all of the things that can happen because we're around each other all the time. But what it also did was create opportunities for these types of conversations that I was talking about earlier, where it's like, if you're cooped up with somebody, you're going to trigger each other. That's inevitable. Like that's going to happen. And what a great opportunity to have these types of conversations. So, I mean, this thing isn't over yet. We're still going to be cooped up with each other for a while for the time being that Mm -hmm. you you start to understand that like, oh, when he does this thing, it's not actually that he's, you know, being a jerk to me. It's coming from this place. And that's not to say that all triggering behaviors should be green-lighted. And there's certainly, hopefully, a negotiation of like, and I'll watch that about myself. And I'm going to be more mindful to not react that way because I'm trying to temper that inner child from throwing a tantrum, right? Mm-hmm. And act in an adult way. Act instead of with rage because you're, not, you're ignoring me with a, hey, it really hurts my feelings when you walk away from me, that kind of thing. So... Yeah, yeah. I think for anyone living with somebody during the pandemic, this can be really good stuff to get into with with whoever is sharing that space with them. <laughs> you're like, whoever, yeah, whoever you're living with right now, because it is it is triggering, and like you have to remember that most of the time we're not like living on top of each other. We're like both like you know anybody. It's like if you have roommates, you're doing different things. Like they're out of the house sometimes. You yeah. get like private time, or you know, vice versa, and. Yes. Like I'm thinking of partnerships in all sorts of ways. Right. And I think people need to remember partnership doesn't only mean like literally you're a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, partner, whatever. It also means friendship. And like, I'm also thinking about, I hope Mary listens to this because I remember one time she's like one of my best friends. She's definitely the like come towards. And I, she was like a little bit, I had hurt her feelings and she like wanted to talk about it and I remember <laughs> she like came into my room and I used to live across the hall from her and she like walked and she was like Christina I want to talk and I was like <laughs> literally I like crouched down and like hid and I think I was like laying in my bed maybe and she was just like a little turtle turtle in the mirror. Yeah, so, like, I was literally like hiding under my covers being like oh, fuck. she was like what what did I do I'm so sorry yeah <laughs> like but then we were able to talk about it and then like laugh and be like, okay, like this is why, like, yes, yeah, sorry. I know that I, I was like, I know that I do that whenever I'm feeling like uncomfortable mm-hmm. because I have a hard time like expressing how I'm feeling right. or what I want to say because I'm scared that like you're not going to respond to it or like you want to leave. And so I'm just going to try to avoid it as much as humanly possible. Right. And I just feel like 
it is such a good lesson to learn for everything and like how you interact with other people. Yeah, I mean, this stuff can extend into anything and everything. And basically, it's kind of like that theory of like, the more you know yourself, the better your relationships and your interactions with the external world will be because you understand that, you know, the way that you look at the world is probably through one of those saran wraps. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to mean, you know, what you think it means. And so we're really that that process of removing those layers of, of cling wrap, I think, really allows us to be more authentic, right? To present ourselves in an authentic way, which usually leads to better, more fulfilling relationships, a career that lines up better with you, like being in friendships and connections that resonate better with you because you're really understanding who you are at your core instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm just this way and I'm just that way and the world is just this way. And it's like, no, wait, hold on. Let me investigate this further. But yeah, there's a lot of great benefits to it, I think. And I mean, one of the biggest ones is just that you learn to love yourself better because you get great understanding of like why you are the way that you are. There's nothing better. And I tell this to my clients and in hopes that they will take a deep breath and cross the hurdles that lie in front of them. Because one of the best feelings that I've been able to create for myself through inner child work is when I've messed up or when I've done something that I'm not proud of or when I'm really, really upset there's almost like an intrinsic reaction to that already in my head that speaks to me in a comforting, loving parent way where it's like, it's okay, Fernie. I'm here for you. I love you. I know you're upset. And that I can offer myself that holding, right, that, that you learn through inner child work in those moments. And there is nothing like being your own buddy in that moment. Like, just to have that sense of like, I don't really need another human being here. Of course, that's nice. And of course, we all need our support systems. And yes, run to your sisters, best friends, mothers, whoever it is that support you. But when you're, in, when you're alone and when you're sitting with that pain on your own, being able to create a loving parent figure voice, compassionate voice in your own mind to meet that pain is just awesome. It's like, oh, I don't really need anything outside of myself. It's like self-soothing. Yeah, it's very self-soothing and it and it helps you regulate and it helps you not spin out and it helps you whew, ground back down when you're really upset. And it also feels very reassuring because you feel less alone in that moment, even though you're still just technically with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that. I like think the greatest relationship that you can have is with yourself. Absolutely. It's like, it, everything stems from who you are and how you move through the world. And it's like, it's so funny. Cause like every time I have a conversation on the podcast, like I feel like somehow it always comes back to like this idea of like understanding yourself more is like truly the key to moving about yeah. life and like yeah. finding at least for me, like, I feel like I found a little bit more of an inner peace than I ever had before, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's from, thinking a little bit more about how I move through the world and and just being curious, but like, again, not being judgmental mm-hmm. on how I'm feeling and I don't know, doing whatever little rituals that help me ground myself. Yeah. Just doing those more and leaning into that. Yeah. And so my last question to you yes. is what are your rituals that help you other than like, I know you mentioned a couple already, which is like talking to yourself and like, showing yourself that self-compassion for those moments. 
But like, what are some other things that you do to like help you, I don't know, stay grounded, like, you know, give your inner child a little bit of peace and, and love. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that you just did that gesture with your hand over (laughs) your heart because I do that to myself a lot. So one, I'll put this out there as like a helpful tool for the people listening. Like if you think about and answer this from your intuition, what was the thing that you really, really, really wanted to hear when you were growing up? And just take a moment, right? To think of like, what is it that I just wanted to hear more often? Doesn't mean your parents are bad. Doesn't mean anyone is bad. Just what would you like to hear? And for me, it was, I love you and I'm proud of you. And I think that for most people, that's what it is because again, Mm -hmm. kids are real simple, but it can be, you're safe. It can be, I'm here with you, right? If you were alone a lot as a kid, it can be, you are enough or you're doing enough as you are. I love you as you are, right? For our high achieving kids, I love you as you are. Remember those words, write them down on a post-it, write them down somewhere. You'll see it. Choose one, maybe two, or maybe three phrases. And when you feel really triggered, really upset, put a hand on your heart. Skin to skin is better. So literally just the palm, your palm on your sternum and say those things to yourself. In your mind, if you want to, out loud is more powerful. In the mirror is the most powerful. So that's one of my favorite practices to do. It's super simple. It's private, right? You do it in the comfort of your own bedroom or lock yourself in the bathroom or whatever it is. Doing it in the mirror is really, really powerful. And that's such a simple but impactful way to show yourself self-compassion in the moment and to regulate your emotions and to access compassion in a really simple way. So that's one of my favorite things that I do to myself all the time. I think I learned this from you. <laughs> the hand over the heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hand over the heart. A, it's a somatic, it's a very easy way to um, feel safe and feel like, okay, like it's a regulating gesture for your nervous system. I like to do that all the time. I read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot with teachers and, and authors who are proponents of, of self-compassion and self-love. I just intake that information a lot. And the people that I expose myself to are people who are validating that message rather than telling me I need to be more, do more, look a different way. I think that caring for what my intake is of the world, especially through social media, mm-hmm. is a practice in and of itself that I'm not engaging or exposing myself to messages or people that make me feel less than or like I need something different. It's authors, yeah. creators, people out there who are affirming that you know, you're beautiful, great, worthy, lovable, just the way that you are. And then filters are so important. They are filter your feed. And then of course, you know, I'm a big yoga junkie, yoga, the practice of yoga for me is incredibly healing in the sense that it really reminds me day to day how wonderful and miraculous my body is. And that, you know, I'm here to be of service. And there's something higher than me in the works up there that like I can surrender to. So I would say that, you know, my yoga, my meditation practices are super, super grounding and reaffirming. And then just that little technique of hand over the heart when you're upset and, you know, say that phrase that you've always wanted to hear, that you wanted to hear as a child. Those are probably my my biggest ones, I would say. And therapy, going to therapy myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm sure like, I don't know if this happened for you, but did your books get like totally just filled up with quarantine happening. Yes. I feel like people were really like, Mm -hmm. I need to talk to somebody immediately. Yeah. One career 
that didn't suffer during the pandemic was therapists. I mean, I'm very grateful. And it, obviously, it's it's been sad to not see people in person, to have to see people through screens. But the work, I feel, is just as powerful. And so, and the connections are really powerful. And by now, I think most of us have gotten used to it. So, yeah, there's no lack of people coming in the virtual doors right now, thankfully. And I anticipate that to continue to be the truth pandemic or not. I think that therapy is becoming more accessible and more normalized than ever before. And I think that's also why people are coming and knocking on my door because it's like, oh, there's this thing that I can do that's like holds me accountable and keeps me checked in and somebody that can guide me into all the dark, scary places of my psyche. Like now more than ever, people are like, sign me up. <laughs> whereas like, I know people are like, like, yes, give it to me. Yeah. Whereas before people were probably like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole, but now people are like super eager to, to self excavate and to you know, discover why they tick. Yeah, I think it, that's an interesting thing that we could talk about one day too, is like part this three. trend. Of, <laughs> yeah, part three, where people, you're so right. Like there was a time where everyone was like, therapy, like that's so hush hush. You go to therapy, you must be crazy. Yeah, but now it's like, oh, like I want to go to therapy so I can like understand myself. You know, it's just like a different, it's a different vibe. Yeah, it is. I get so many of my clients who are like in their young 20s. Like I have a client who's 19. I'm like, you are so ahead of the game, girlfriend. Like you are understanding <laughs> things about yourself that I didn't understand until I was like, you know, until I was well into my 30s. And it makes me really happy because it feels like, you know, Gen Z is going to have a deeper understanding of mental health and how to access mm -hmm. it and how to make it a priority than anyone ever before. And, you know, that's going to create more stable, loving, compassionate human beings. And so hopefully the world just gets the world will turn into that more and more <laughs> compassionate and empathic and in their feels like that, that makes yeah. me really happy for like when I have my babies and what they're going to grow up in, like that, that's going to be, that's going to be a normal part of life. Yeah, I'm glad too, because it's kind of combating all the social media and internet kind of stuff too. So right. there's good things out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you've answered this question before, but obviously we're in a different time. Yeah. The last one that I always ask is, are there any women of color that are inspiring you right now? Let me think. Hmm. You, do you count? You inspire me with everything that you do within Bold Company. I love it, babe. Um. God, you always ask me that and it puts me on the spot because my brain just fails right away. I know. People are always like, wait. Oh my gosh. I mean, Rachel Cargill, I love so much her content because it's not just about learning about anti-racism, but she's also like this really beautiful messenger for self-compassion and self-love. So she kind of like intermingles both like the anti-racism education and self-love and self-compassion. So I love her. And then, you know, she made the Loveland Foundation, which is basically like a foundation strictly for getting therapy and mental health services to women of color, which I just think like, okay, we need so many more of those like in, in mm -hmm. all underprivileged communities. So I would say that right now she's one of my favorite content creators because everything that she puts out there, I'm just like, yes, girl, speak it louder. It's so good. And, and a lot of the resources that I've gained from about anti-racism education have come from her. I really love that she also embraces this idea of like being multifaceted, yeah. you know, on the internet. Yeah. 
because people really want you to like have a niche and only yeah, like talk stay about in your lane about uh, whatever it is, right? But she's mm-hmm. like putting it all out there, which I really, yeah, like, really love. Or she's like, I'm literally a human being that has like many interests. Yeah. Like, please, and I'm not just gonna focus on this one thing. Exactly, and I really appreciate that about the work that she does too. Like, that's my favorite thing because. I think especially being on social media, like there is that pressure of like, you know, especially if you have a business or like you have a project or something, like people only want to see like that one thing from you Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, but like I myself am a complicated, multifaceted human being with varied interests and a life, Mm -hmm. you know, outside of this Mm -hmm. and like use your platform. It's your platform. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you're walking into somebody else's house. Like that's my favorite metaphor the internet yeah I just thought of another one while we were talking have you heard of the author pixie lighthorse you know what I have she does does she do shadow yes shadow she work? has a shadow work book and she has a boundaries book and I'm not sure from what tribe she her origins are from but she's Native American or she's part Native American and right now one of her big issues that she speaks quite a bit about is obviously like the treatment of Native American people and lots of the social issues that are happening in that realm as well. She talks Mm. about on top of being this like incredible spiritual author that deals with things like what we just talked about. Her boundaries workbook is so, so good. What's a workbook? No, I don't know if she has a workbook, workbook, but she has, it's very, it's a very quick read because it's like a, a short book and every page is like one lesson that she's teaching you. I really love that book, especially for people who are sort of struggling with, with boundary work, but yes, I've read both of them, the shadow work one and the boundaries one, and they're both really great. I love her as an author and also as an activist. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end. I'm going to tell you how you can support us and also how you can win a free pair of Allbirds. So two things you have to do right now especially if you love the show and you support us and you want us to keep going it would mean so much if you took a second and left a review on itunes give us five stars because you love us so much and i even shared it in the show notes to make it even easier and that's it you'll be entered to win a pair of Allbirds, and we'll announce the winner at the end of january so that's it But if you also want to connect with me on some of the other things that we do at here in Bold Company, you can also join our Thursday morning newsletter, Women of Color Weekly, where we share events, resources, inspiration, all by women of color.